guys, welcome to Relatable. Happy Thursday. Hope everyone has had a wonderful week so far. Um, Today, we are talking to Rachel Bovard. She is a journalist. She writes about big tech, and we've had her on the podcast before talking to her about the solutions that she proposes to the power that big tech holds um, in the lives of Americans and even the power that they have to influence our elections and why that's a problem and where she thinks the federal government should step in and try to curb some of the influence that they have. Um, She's coming from a conservative perspective, though, whereas, as we will talk about today, Democrats who want um, more authority over these technology companies seem to want to do so, not because they want to protect the country from their influence, but because they actually want to try to control the flow of information and the messages that, especially the political messages that the American public is receiving. So Rachel Bovard is very nuanced on this issue. She is very well versed on this issue. She is going to talk to us a little bit about that. But really what we're focusing on is this Facebook whistleblower, or if she's being called a whistleblower. Her name is Frances Haugen. She testified uh, during the Senate Commerce Science and Transportation Subcommittee on Consumer Protection, Product Safety, and Data Security. She worked for Facebook, and um, she came out and said, you know, Facebook is doing all of these bad things. They know that they're doing bad things. And also, she believes that Facebook should step in, or uh, the government should step in and should basically regulate Facebook. There's some disagreement on the right and the left about whether or not she is a hero or whether she is just kind of a partisan hack because some of the things that she said during this hearing, like wanting to censor political information that she doesn't like, that's something that she believes that Facebook should do. Obviously, people on the right don't like that. But at the same time, she is pointing out um, that Uh, Facebook is knowingly devastating the mental health and the safety of young children, especially young girls, and they're not doing anything about it. And so it's important that we look at all sides of this and think about what some solutions to this problem um, uh, to this problem might might be, and Rachel's going to do that for us. Now, you probably noticed a couple days ago that Instagram and Facebook and WhatsApp, which was acquired by Facebook, we're all down. And I don't think we have all of the information of why that happened, but there are some questions as to as to whether or not it had to do with all of this because there have been internal documents that have been leaked by this so-called whistleblower. There's some disagreement about whether, you know, whether or not we should be calling her that. Um that have showed uh, you know, a lot of the Uh, a lot of the problems within Facebook and the nefarious things that are going on there. So they're already going under that PR crisis. Then things shut down to the point to where apparently – Facebook employees couldn't even get inside the building like the their little uh, the keypad wasn't working to get inside the building. And I don't think we even know all of the reasons why. And so there's some questions about whether or not this is all interconnected somehow. Um, you know, I, I don't know, but Rachel is going to lend as much insight as she possibly can. She is very, very clear. She's going to break all of this very complicated stuff down in a way that 
make sense. I, I don't know about y'all, but when I was on, so when I was on um, trying to get on Instagram the other day, I think it was on Monday after I recorded the episode with Jonathan Isaac, I was going on Instagram to tell you, um, hey guys, like I just recorded that and it wasn't loading. And so I definitely, I was like, you know what? They are perfect. They're coming after Ali B. Stucky and they are not allowing me to post what I want to post on Instagram. This is censorship. So I deleted the, the app and then I redownloaded it. I tried to open it back up and it still wouldn't let me on. Took me a long time before I figured out, okay, I need to go on Twitter. This is what everyone does. You go on Twitter and you search the words Facebook and Instagram to see if other people are dealing with this. And they were. Everyone was on Twitter and on Telegram and things like that to uh, to talk about how, unfortunately, Instagram was down. And it was a little weird. Like, I, it, reminded, it reminded me or it showed me, I guess, that I rely on Instagram a lot to connect with you guys. And obviously, there have been days where I've been off Instagram, but it felt weird not being able to talk to y'all. I mean, I spend a pretty good chunk of my day responding to messages from you guys on Instagram. Um, And if I haven't responded to you, I'm not ignoring you. I can't get to all of them, but I do respond to people and repost the things that you guys tag me in. And it felt really weird not being able to to talk to y'all. I did not like it. And it made me realize maybe I need to diversify my platforms um, a little bit, but it also takes a lot of energy to post on all the different platforms. And, um, but that's probably something that I'm going to have to do so I can stay connected to you guys, even when Instagram shuts down. But it just showed me, wow, these platforms have so much power and play such a big role in our lives. It really, really is important that we are paying attention to what they're doing and what's going on behind the scenes. So that's why we're talking about this today, especially if you are a parent, guys. If you are a parent, you need to listen to this. And we have to be so cognizant of what our kids are consuming. As long as your kids are under your roof, like they are under... Um, your authority. You get to set the rules. If you feel like, oh, dang, you know, if I took away Snapchat for my 13-year-old or Instagram for my 14-year-old, who we know from these internal Facebook documents are really, really negatively affected by the kind of content that they consume on these platforms, if you're afraid that they might be mad at you or something, my humble advice as someone who is not a mom of a teenager, but who has been a teenager, not too long ago is that it is worth it. It's worth the frustration. It might be worth the anger that they show towards you. You are doing what God has called you to do, which is steward their hearts and their minds to the best of your ability. You can't protect them from everything, um, but you can do what you can while they're under your roof to try to make sure that what they are consuming and what they are taking in is that which is good and right and true. So that's just my encouragement before we get into this um, conversation with Rachel. Um, And before we actually start with that, I do want to tell you guys about our first sponsor for the day. Guess what it is? It's Good Ranchers. It's Good Ranchers, guys. You guessed it. It's Good Ranchers. Good Ranchers is this awesome company that sends you meat to your front door. It sends you better than organic chicken. Pre-marinated, non-pre-marinated. It sends you craft beef. You can get your fillets. You can get your T-bone steaks. You can get your ground beef. We get all of those. And they ship it to our front door on dry ice. Everything is vacuum sealed, individually wrapped. We put it in our freezer, then it's good to go. That's just one last thing that we have to think about. If you subscribe, get that box of meat every month. It's like 20% off each 
each box when you when you decide to subscribe or you can just place a one-time order that's fine too plus if you use my promo code or my link if you go to goodranchers.com slash Allie you get an extra twenty dollars off and free express shipping or you can just use my code Allie all American meat. You're supporting American farms and American farmers. The people at Good Ranchers have traveled the country meeting with these people. They're guaranteeing a high quality product from these American farms. So go to goodranchers.com slash Allie, goodranchers.com slash Allie. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us again. Okay. I just want you to break down this whole Facebook whistleblower thing. Who is Frances Haugen? Where did she come from? What is she saying? And what should we think about all of this? <laughs> well, thanks for having me back. And yes, Frances Hogan, or Haugen, I suppose, burst onto the scene with a, a congressional hearing yesterday. But we've been reading about her findings for the last several weeks. If anyone's, if anyone's been following the Facebook files that the Wall Street Journal has been putting out showing the fruits of her research, basically this trove of documents of internal research that came from Facebook showing that they know how their products harm children, specifically uh, 13% of teenage girls tracing their suicidal ideations back to Instagram, mm. you know, the cartels and sex traffickers that use their platform. Um, the fact that they know the Chinese government is using their platform to stalk Uyghur Muslims, you know, who are they at, they are wow. actively trying to wipe out in China. All of this has been discussed in the Wall Street Journal. But yesterday, we really saw the face of of Frances Haugen. We saw her on 60 Minutes on Sunday as well. So she's a former Facebook employee. She went to work for Facebook in 2018. So, you know, you have to wonder, she knew what Facebook was doing at that point uh, in time, but went to work for them anyway. And she's released these documents in an attempt, I think, to push Congress to implement some reforms. And now, if you listen to her testimony yesterday, it was disturbing to a lot of us on the right because she didn't call for, you know, breaking up Facebook or reducing the power Facebook has. She explicitly said, no, we need a government misinformation agency. We need someone to regulate Facebook. I mean, what she was calling for was basically overt government censorship of speech, you know, more entrenchment of these platforms to go after, you know, January 6th insurrectionists, which we know because of definition inflation on the Democratic side, that just means any conservative who they don't like. Um, so her proposed solutions, I think, are very suspect. Um, but I do think the the information she's provided is useful and I think could provoke investigations on, you know, privacy, what Facebook is doing uh, with the information about your children, and even some information about their ad practices. All of that should go to the regulating agencies for investigations. Uh, and I hope that's what does happen. Yeah, so I guess that leads to my next question. What should be the solutions then? Because we would agree that a lot of the problems that she lists are actual problems, mm -hmm. but we don't think that the answer is necessarily the government coming in and just regulating the heck out of Facebook. And so what would you suggest we should do? So my first policy proposal has always started with the antitrust enforcement. One, because these are laws on the books, right? We don't have to create, you know, this new regulatory structure to go after these companies. Antitrust laws are supposed to protect the free market. And I think we've done a very poor job of enforcement around the tech space. And that's my preferred solution for a lot of these speech problems is competition, right? If you actually had a free market in tech, you could compete a lot of these concerns away. And I think that that takes away a lot of the speech concerns. If you look at speech as downstream of market power. And what I mean by that is, think about Google right now. Google filters information for 90% of America. And so what they choose to suppress, what they choose to amplify, 
can literally change the minds mm-hmm. of, you know, a big proportion of the country. If that market power is broken, I don't care what Google suppresses or amplifies if they're only doing it for 30% of the country, right? The 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 market for information is much more open and and less of a cartel. So I think antitrust can solve that problem. Um, but I do think that there are other reforms that need to be made. You know, you often hear Section 230 bandied about. Now you'll hear Democrats want to use it again for speech control, for censorship. I do think it has to be done in a way that keeps Section 230 in place, but brings it back to its original intent. And Justice Clarence Thomas has now written about this twice. You know, he said, look, the lower courts have gotten this wrong. What was a porous immunity has become a bulletproof one. You know, guys, the original intent here was so that like child pornography didn't flourish on the platforms. You know, there's this yeah. was never supposed to be expanded as, as a protection for sex trafficking on Facebook, which is what Facebook claims as its immunity is Section 230. It was never designed to, you know, engage in or protect overt political censorship, which is what we're seeing now. So there needs to be a retraction, a return to the original intent of that statute. Yeah. Um, you know, and then I also think data privacy and data port- portability play a big role here, too. And that's an area that Congress, frankly, hasn't even begun to explore. Yeah. Can you um, just quickly summarize, you kind of did, but in a very basic form, can you summarize what Section 230 is supposed to be, what it was originally intended to do? So Section 230 was never even actually a bill. It was an amendment to a much larger uh, telecommunications package. And the title of the amendment was the Family Online Empowerment Act. It was supposed to, again, give these companies a an incentive to take down sort of the smutty, you know, violent, harassing content that nobody wanted to see. And to do that, it basically says, look, these platforms do, are not subject to the liability for what users post on their platform, right? They're not publishers in that regard. They can't mm-hmm. be sued for what we say. And then it gives them a, a protection. It says, look, even if this is constitutionally protected speech, we want you to be able to take down, and it lists a whole ho- a host of, of criteria, you know, lewd, lascivious, harassing, all this criteria. That's what it was designed to do. But unfortunately, the lower courts have just expanded it so dramatically that again, the Texas uh, in this Texas Supreme Court, Facebook recently argued against three moms who brought a case there. Their 14 and 15 year old girls were trafficked wow. into sex slavery on Instagram, and those moms said, "Hey, look, Facebook knew this and did nothing. Facebook is responsible." And Facebook said, "No, we're not. Section 230 protects us. We're not responsible for this." And so that's how it's become so grossly distorted that it's protecting Facebook from the not from even knowing sex traffickers are are on their site and doing nothing about it. And right. so I do think that that needs to be brought back to bear because this is just non-sustainable. The size and scale of these platforms makes that kind of policy unsustainable. They're protecting criminals and getting away with it. Right. So it was supposed to say, hey, you have the power to be able to take off really bad content from your platforms without being liable for the rest mm-hmm. of the content that is on your platform, which is good because that allows them to remove really bad content that we don't want on there. But the thing that I'm thinking is that they very often don't remove really bad content that's on there. Like you said, um, like we've seen several times, this is a source Instagram uh, Facebook or a source of not just harassment and bullying and doxing that very often is never held accountable and never removed, um, but also it is uh, a vessel for trafficking and for uh, grooming and for the sexualization of children. And they don't seem to be using Section 230 
um, to empower themselves to remove that kind of content. It seems like they only invoke Section 230 when they don't want responsibility to remove that content and also when they want justification for removing, say, political content that they don't like in the name of misinformation. Is that part of the problem? That's a huge part of the problem. And I think especially when you're talking about political speech, you know, these platforms, the reality of them now, and this was not the reality when Section 230 was passed or when Facebook began, but the the reality of them now is that, you know, Facebook and, and even Twitter to some extent, these are how candidates now reach their constituents or mm. voters. You know, this is how these are. We saw this with President Trump, right? This is how uh, candidates and elected officials talk to the voters, talk to potential voters. And when you remove the ability of, you know, one party or one candidate in a primary to access that forum, that does have a political impact at this point. And that's a reality that our laws haven't grappled with yet. You you even saw the RNC, the Republican National Committee, brought a, a lawsuit um, to the Federal Elections Commission after Twitter suppressed circulation of the story about Hunter Biden from the New York Post. RNC went to FEC and said, look, this is a campaign violation. This is a, this is an in-kind donation to Joe Biden, you know, to to suppress this critical story at this critical time. And even the FEC said, look, it's not because we think Twitter is a publisher. We think Twitter is a media outlet. You know, they weren't trying to, you know, sway the debate in any way. They have a First Amendment right to do this. And that just flies in the face, I think, of reality at this point. But I think it speaks to the fact that our laws simply haven't caught up to what these platforms actually are right now, which is sort of key avenues of you know, speech, political speech, commerce, information flow, you know, we, when we have laws that just don't, I think, accurately reflect the, that reality at this point. Okay, quick break from that conversation to tell you guys about ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN protects your privacy while you are online. My whole family uses ExpressVPN. I really love it. I like knowing that um, my privacy or my information is not for sale on the websites that I use when I'm using ExpressVPN and choosing an a VPN that you trust really matters. Not all VPNs are created equal, but I use ExpressVPN because they're not only easy to use, but they're also super trustworthy and they're just very high quality. All you have to do is you download the ExpressVPN app, you create yourself an account, and then that same account can be used on five different devices. And so I've got an account, my husband uses it, we use it on both of our computers, we use it on both of our phones, and then, you know, my parents have their own account, we all use it, it protects all of our privacy, as you probably know, and this is very, um, it, it relates to the conversation that we're having. Uh, these, these tech companies don't care about your privacy. They are using you as the product. They are selling your information. And if your children are on these apps, these platforms, they're selling their information too, to third-party advertisers. That's how they make money. That's why these services are free. And if you want any of your information to be protected, then it's really important that you have a VPN. And having this VPN run in the background doesn't slow down your internet or anything like that. You're not even going to notice that 
it's on. Um, it just protects you. And that's super important, especially right now. It's not just me saying this. CNET, The Verge, and many other tech journals rate ExpressVPN the number one VPN in the world. So protect yourself with the VPN that I use and trust. Use my link, expressvpn.com slash Allie. That's expressvpn.com slash Allie to get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash Allie. So Democrats want to regulate these social media companies in the name of trying to police misinformation to protect the public from what they deem misinformation, which we know is probably just an Orwellian descriptor for political speech, like you said, that they don't like, opinions that they don't agree with. Do you think... Do you think that they are using Haugen's testimony? And I don't want to get too conspiratorial, but do you think that this was pre-planned, that they kind of hoisted her up to bring forth all of these issues that the American public really cares about? Okay, you care about if Facebook knows that it could be helping drive young girls to the brink of suicide. It's making their body image issues worse. It's a source of trafficking and grooming for young children. Like, has she been purposely platformed by the side that wants to regulate these social media companies? Is that or is or is that just how she's being incidentally used? I do think that, you know, there is a little bit of an overt effort by Democrats here to use her testimony to favor their own solutions, right? Which is this like major government crackdown on social media, not in the way that Republicans would like it, which again is to let speech flourish, let the free market solve these problems, but through a very top-down, heavy-handed approach. I do think that, you know, she is impeccably groomed and, you know, well-spoken and suddenly, right, all of the sudden, you know, leaking documents to the Wall Street Journal then ends up on a 60 Minutes interview, then in very, very quick turnaround has a Senate hearing, um, you know, all working with a PR firm. There is a little bit of like, there was clear pre-planning that went into place here. And I, but I think, you know, the right can, I think, very legitimately criticize that. They can very legitimately criticize her policy solutions because she's not an expert. They don't have to listen to Frances Haugen. But what they should not ignore is the information she's produced, which there are some very damning indictments of what Facebook is up to. And I think if we ignore that simply because we've you know discredited Frances Haugen, then, you know, we aren't doing our job and actually yeah. saying, what are our solutions for holding Facebook accountable? Because what she's produced, exclusive of, you know, her motivations, is still important in this debate. What do you think the motivations are for Facebook and Instagram? Obviously, they Instagram is an entity of Facebook. Um, but, you know, Google... YouTube, and again, YouTube is an entity of Google, um, even Twitter, to not do more of a thorough job to protect its young users from the kind of material that we know is damaging them, not just psychologically, but also physically, if they are groomed into some kind of abuse. Um, I mean, obviously, they make a huge effort to try to censor any information about, say, COVID therapeutics or people's opinions about masks and things like that. They have certainly mobilized a large team of people to take down that kind of information. Why aren't they quite as motivated to censor the material that they know is damaging the public? Well, I think the really difficult thing to grapple with about that is because it's their business model, right? And and the thing that makes 
what, what's very clear in these documents is how critical it is for Facebook and by de- by extension Instagram to attract those young users. Mm. They, you know, there was lines in those documents about hair, uh, Facebook has teams of people that want to figure out how to quote leverage your child's play date. What does that for mean? more? I, I don't know, and I'm concerned actually about what it means. Like I would like more information about what those teams are doing to quote leverage the playdates of children, but they want Ooh. more clicks on Facebook Messenger, right? Because they, they, they have a Messenger for Kids app, basically, and they want to figure out how kids playing together can somehow mean more clicks and more eyeballs on Facebook because that is their business model. The more users they can attract, the more data they can collect, feeds their very highly lucrative, highly targeted ad business, which is what funds Facebook. That's how Facebook makes money, mm. right? And so there's far less of an incentive I think to police for uh, you know things that you know could be put, could begin to put kids down a very bad track, and that's what's happening, right? We know this, um, and there's a lot of comparisons these days, you know, among people who defend these companies who say, well, this is not, you know, this is like the crusade of the '90s to get rid of video games because video games were going to make us all violent. But again, I don't think that comparison grapples with what social media no, really is so and either. how, yeah, and how ubiquitous it is. It's everywhere. Yeah, you know. And as soon as a kid has a smartphone, they are on these apps, and it's very difficult, I think, to to police that. Even even if you're a, a helicopter parent, right? Even if you know exactly what your kid is doing at all times, you know they aren't in your control at all times, and the, and the internet is everywhere. Yeah, it, it, it's it's certainly not the same thing. One, because, well, I, I would actually argue that anything that we put into our mind can have an effect on our thoughts and therefore our behavior. So that goes for video games, that goes for the things sure. that are online. Um, but it's even more dangerous when it comes to social media because they're not just playing a game that is, you know, closed. They're actually connecting to real life people that could do them harm. That I'm not on Snapchat, but the things that people send me, they screenshot like the explore page or whatever it is that has different news stories. I mean, there are 11 year old kids that are on Snapchat and gosh, parents, if you're listening and your preteen is on Snapchat, change that ASAP. But the stories they have are like, you know, different sex positions and how to have safe anal sex. And here's how to get an abortion without your parents' permission. I mean, that stuff is on Snapchat. And it's not just for, okay, if you're 18 and over, these are the kinds of stories that we'll show you. They don't care. I don't know what the intent is behind sexualizing kids that age. I don't even really want to think about it. But the fact of the matter is, it exists. And I don't think kids have the brain development to be able to filter out that kind of information. And also, they also just don't have the discernment quite yet to say, maybe I shouldn't send this kind of picture because then it's going to be spread. Or maybe this person isn't trustworthy that I'm talking to. I mean, there are all kinds of problems that do obviously primarily rest on the shoulders of the parents that are helping Mm -hmm. make decisions for their kids. But you would like to think that there are at least a few parents at these companies that would sympathize with the concerns of the American public. And I don't know, it just doesn't seem like there is. Well, you have to think about it. You know, on the right, we always prize the profit motive, right? We're like, this is what drives the economy forward. And that's true. But at these companies, they aren't distinguishing between what's good for children and just flat out consumers. They only care about the consumer. Because again, this is how they make money. This is why they are doing, you know, you saw Instagram trying to create Instagram kids, you know, and this is what Facebook was doing with the full knowledge 
of what can happen to kids right. on their website. Right. They don't they, they don't distinguish between child safety necessarily, you know, and what could be a future consumer. And you see this from Google as well. I mean, there's a reason Google hands out free Chromebooks in every school it can. They want to addict your child early because that's their next generation of users. So there's always, you know, I don't think we can trust these companies to look out for child welfare. They've they've proven again and again they kind of frankly don't prioritize it. No. And even when they're punished for it, they barely respond by changing anything. Yep. My last question is, do you have hope that this kind of new crop of conservatives that seems to be coming up, or at least they're running for office, and some of them are already in Congress, obviously, Josh Hawley has been on this beat for a while. Um, But then you've got people running like Blake Masters, J.D. Vance, who say that they really care about, um, you know, uh, about the dominance of big tech and the effect that it's having on society. Do you have hope that there are some Congress people hopefully some younger Congress people who are waking up to this kind of thing, they understand the threat and that they're actually going to do something about it, at least on the right? I am encouraged, I think, you know, not just by the sloganeering and the rhetoric, but by the fact that, you know, people like J.D. Vance, you know, is pretty sophisticated. Blake Masters actually kind of has experience in Silicon Valley. They know how these companies work. And I think that's a lot of what's missing, you know, from the current crop of policymakers. They just, they're they're just not technologically savvy. Well, Blumenthal, he, he, oh my gosh, I'm sure you saw, he said, and I don't know if the audience saw, he said something like, will you commit to ending Finsta? And Finsta is like a, you know, a slang term for a fake Instagram or like a friend Instagram. Oh gosh. So that is, that's a huge problem. They just don't understand. Well, and, you know, I think this younger generation of, of lawmakers, they have young kids. Right. Right. They have kids that grew up in this environment in a way that I I didn't and perhaps you didn't either. You know, I'm in the elder generation of millennials who Mm -hmm. didn't have Facebook right (laughs) until like Mm -hmm. the end of college. Yeah. So I think they are much more aware and and I think fluent in what the problem is. And then I think in addition to that, this newer generation is skeptical far more skeptical, I think, of concentrations of power outside of the government. And that, I think, for a long time is what's been missing on the right. You mm-hmm. know, we very rightly look at the government and say, this is a big threat. And, you know, we should be wary about what the government is up to. But in many cases, and I think, no, not many cases, in certain cases, and I think in this case with big tech, you have an unprecedented accumulation of power and control here that deserves just as much scrutiny and skepticism. And I think the younger generation of lawmakers is far more savvy in that regard and fearless, I think, too, about calling it to account. Yep. Well, I'm I'm hopeful. Obviously, we don't know the results of those elections. We can hope. I do think having some young blood and having a new understanding and also feeling like you have a vested interest in these companies changing because you've got those young kids that are being exposed, that are being exposed to that. Um, And there's really only so much that parents can do to protect their kids from that. They go to a friend's house, they go to school. I mean, this really does affect everyone and it can very seriously shape the minds of an entire generation for the worse. Um, So I'm thankful for the work that you do to try to inform people about, um, what's going on. And and maybe there are some good things that will come out of this quote unquote whistleblower testimony um, that aren't just, you know, a government overhaul of these of these companies. Um, That's the hope. Yeah, that's (laughs) the hope. Well, thank you very much. Where can people find you and follow you? So you can find me on Twitter at Rachel Bovard and all my work is at CPI.org as well. Thank you so much, Rachel. Thank you so much. 
Okay, guys, hope you enjoyed that conversation. Definitely follow Rachel. She's just like a wealth of information and knowledge, especially on this subject. I've got to tell you about our last sponsor for the day, and that is Dwell. This is a really awesome service, an awesome app. It allows you to not just read the Bible um, on the backdrop of beautiful art, but it also allows you to listen to the Bible. So especially if you're on the go as a mom, I totally get that. Like you don't have time every day to sit down for an hour and a half with all of your favorite commentaries and the original Greek and Hebrew and journal all of your thoughts on your Bible reading that day. That's awesome if you do that every day. Not everyone has time, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't read the Bible that day. You can listen to the Bible on the go and it is still, um, it's it's still by the power of the Holy Spirit sanctifying you, uh, making you wiser and grounding you in truth and reminding you in the midst of all the craziness that's going on that God is in control. Uh, the Dwell app has lots of different versions. I like ESV, but they've also got NIV, they've got KJV, they've got NASB and all that good stuff. So you can pick your favorite. And then they've got the read along experience. So like I said, you can read the Bible while also listening at the same time. That allows you to really retain information. That can be difficult, especially if you're reading, say, I don't know, the book of numbers and you're trying to remember what's actually being said. Well, you can listen to it. You can read it at the same time and it will help you do that. Uh, to get started with Dwell, go to dwellapp.io slash relatable to get 10% off a yearly subscription or 33% off Dwell for life. That means 33% off um, is saving $50. So go to dwellapp.io slash relatable, commit to scripture for the rest of this year or better yet, the rest of your life, dwellapp.io slash relatable. Okay, guys, thanks so much for listening this week. This was a big week. We had NBA player on Monday, Jonathan Isaac, talking about his decision not to get the vaccine and how he has the courage to stand up for these controversial uh, opinions nowadays, vaccine choice. But also last year, he was the only player on the Orlando Magic to stand up for the national anthem and not wear a Black Lives Matter shirt. When he was asked the reason why, he shared the gospel. I mean, the guy is solid. I really appreciated him coming on and kind of telling us his reasoning and sharing his story. If you have not heard that conversation, definitely go listen to it or watch on YouTube. We had our 500th episode on Tuesday and just the messages and the comments and the reshares that you guys put out there and just the encouragement and the kind words that you gave to me and what Relatable has meant to you. Just it means so much. Thank you, guys. I'm so thankful to be able to do this. If you do love this show, please leave a five-star review on Apple. Tell us why you love it. Just a couple sentences is great. That would mean a whole lot. Um, Monday, we've got Christopher Rufo coming on, and he has really led the charge against critical race theory in schools. And you guys might have seen the story of the Department of Justice led by Merrick Garland, Biden's Department of Justice. They are now mobilizing the FBI against parents that they say are threatening, you know, school board members or public school teachers. Now, of course, any threats of violence are not okay, not right. But what the fear is, and the very justified fear, is that the DOJ is going to actually be weaponized against parents who just raise their concerns, and that this is more of an intimidation uh, intimidation tactic than anything else to try to silence uh, justifiably concerned 
parents. So make sure you tune into that. That'll be a big episode. And I hope you guys have a great weekend. I will see you on Monday.